we started doing vocals and then it started raining and thundering like crazy. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, I do. So we couldn't cut the vocals because it was the, the thunder was so loud <laughs> that uh, it was bleeding into the mics. Yeah. So then we sat down to see, you know, like, well, we're, you know, we've got this four or five hour chunk, whatever it was carved out anyways. Let's see what we can do. And then the power went out. <laughs> so we sat down with uh, either a candle or uh, <laughs> our phone light and we drank like almost an entire bottle of bourbon and just bullshit. <laughs> Welcome to Dream Studios Podcast. You came back for another episode. Thank you. My guest today is, oh, by the way, I am Hogue. I'm the mixing and recording engineer here at The Dream in South Austin, Texas. And my guest today is Reed Umstadt. Let's see, where to start here? Reed has a voice. In fact, Reed was on NBC's show, The Voice. He was on Team Adam, and he made it all the way to the live rounds. Uh, the top 24 of more than 40,000 hopefuls. His rendition of Patty Griffin's Let Him Fly was the night's most popular song on iTunes, reaching number two on the rock chart and number 125 on the overall singles chart. But his story doesn't start with the voice. Reed grew up in Austin in a musical household that spun a cocktail of Motown records, rock records, and country records. And the genre-bending vocal style that he would become known for draws from each of those traditions. Reed co-founded the band Nello here in Austin in the early 2000s, uh, and in the mid-2000s they toured extensively, and they played Austin City Limits Festival, and they had quite a bit of success. After Nello, Reed took three years off, thinking that perhaps he was done with the music business, but then he auditioned for The Voice, and he did really well, and I suppose he got that itch again. And in 2019, I was lucky enough to have him come into the dream to record his album, Pockets of Clouds. It was a joy working with him. Reed is a, a thorough person, a perfectionist. Sets a very high bar for himself. And he communicated his vision with precision and focus. I played drums on the album. And uh, he, had, he had very particular ideas of what he wanted the drums to do. And it was, it was fun and funny having him sort of conduct me uh, while I was tracking the drums. But we'll get to that in a little bit. And Chris McQueen, who you've heard from a previous episode of the Dream Studios podcast, Chris McQueen played guitars and bass on this album. Uh, before we bring Reed on, let's listen to a little bit of a track called, let's listen to a little bit of Spellbound. Searching for from the heat on the pockets of Boy, we had a good time producing that song and getting all those layers. Reed, welcome to the Dream Studios podcast. Please say hello. Hi. How are you? I'm great, man. You said it right. You spelled it wrong. I did? <laughs> yeah. Damn it. It's a podcast. I didn't even have to spell it. That's all right. I know. It's okay. It's TTD. It, it's like totally... Uh, it doesn't make any sense. It's. I think it's misspelled. Whatever language it, you, it, like, it came from, which I think is German... I, my my uh, theory is that whoever came over when they signed the book at Ellis Island or wherever they yeah. came through, they wrote it down wrong or it was written sloppily and then they became TTD for the rest of their 
all the way up until me. I've thought about changing it because it's a it's a it's a daily nightmare. I bet, but it's uh, I don't think you should change it. I don't think you should erase your. No, you're right. Yeah, my heritage, my yeah. misspelled heritage. <laughs> your misspelled heritage. That's yeah. a good name for an album. Yeah, I thought of another one today too. Uh, Toy Funeral. I really, I, for some reason, that one struck me today as a cool uh, name. That's a kind of a band name too. I think it's a cool band name. Yeah, Toy Funeral is good. Hang on to that one. Yeah, yeah. I've got it written down. Okay, good. <laughs> but that's not the name of the album you did here. The name of the album you did here was what? Uh, Pockets of Clouds. That's right. What was your writing and and demo process like? And did your did your vision for these songs change or adjust in the process of coming in here to track and and mix them? Um, the writing process. I was brand new to songwriting when uh, when I started writing those songs. Those are from the first batch of tunes that I wrote. So the process was still kind of haphazard, and um, it still is for me. I mean, I still am so new to it that I don't have like a worked out strategy as to how to get like work my way into a song. But um, with that one, I, I had, I had, I had through a friend, you know, JD, uh, JD Torian. Mm-hmm. Um, that bastard. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> that asshole. <laughs> uh, through him, I had been able to join the songwriting group. It, it was, it was a really great way for me to, they set deadlines. They'll give you a prompt on a Monday and then set a, set a deadline for that Sunday. And so by the end of that Sunday, you need to have a completed song recorded. It doesn't have to be like fleshed out. It can just be a voice memo if it needs to be. Mm-hmm. But I took that opportunity to start trying to learn GarageBand and then Logic as well. So I was building, I was trying to build pretty fleshed out demos. So um, every week I wrote a song for that uh, songwriting group for like three or four months. And out of that, I think all of those, those, that first collection of six songs that are on the pocket of clouds, pockets, pockets of clouds, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I always it's mess pl- up the, pl- where the plural is too. It's, pl- it's plural. I, I'm almost certain. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's pocket. We, on a pockets of, yes, it's pockets of clouds. Okay. It's a, it's a lyric from the song you played from Spellbound. It is. Yes. They heard yeah. it on the intro. I've, in fact, they heard those, that lyric pockets of yeah. clouds. So yeah. Yeah. So that one was Pockets of Clouds, actually. That prompt was Pockets of Clouds. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so that's how it went. I, I, I still feel like deadlines are the best way for me to finish songs. I, during quarantine, I've been trying to write so much, and without the, the structure of somebody holding me accountable to a deadline, it's really, really hard for me to finish stuff. Um, so especially that first batch of songs, it was really helpful to, to have deadlines and prompts because I was still sort of trying to figure out my, like the, how, what I was going to try to say as a lyricist as well. Did you have any concerns coming in in terms of what those demos would become? Because that's one of the things that happens when you go into the studio after demoing, at least in my experience, you, have a, you, you, know, you might develop something called demoitis where you yeah. become attached to the demos, or maybe they weren't fleshed out. What was, how did everything change when you came in here? Um, with Spellbound, let's just take that as an example. I think that was one that I did have a pretty like specific visual idea, uh, uh, sonic idea. Um, I mean, not visual. Um, and so, <laughs> uh, although I, I do kind of see it in visuals, I, like, I, like lots of times I see it in colors, and I, I'm a big fan of 
films to or movies. I hate when people say films, but I'm a big, I'm big, <laughs> I'm a big movie fan. I'm a big movie Reed, fan. Reed does not watch movies. He watch watches films. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love movies, and so I usually think in cinematic terms, especially with songs like Spellbound that have so much. Um, they have just a lot of potential for sonic elements that can really paint a picture. Um, so yes, I did have a lot to. I brought in certain ideas for sure on most of those songs. I'm making a record now that I feel like I've run into a lot more demo-itis with, and I think that's because I've gotten better with Logic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I'm like a, a step or two closer to being able to re- realize what's in my head and not and without having to need somebody else. Yeah. So the, it makes the birthing process in the studio much more painful because I've, I've... I've gotten so close with the demo that uh, that it's like it's at certain times you, you almost just want to tell whoever's playing just to play what I played, but I don't want to do that because you hire people who are better than you for a reason. So demos are a tricky thing. So far, I've I've definitely have run into that. I've uh, just kind of overproducing the demos and and running into demoitis. But I don't remember th- that being an issue with you at at the dream. I think we. It was so smooth. Everything that we did was we never you and I didn't, never really had any like big disagreements on like where what what needed to happen. I, I think we pretty much realized the vision that I had for sure, the sonic vision. We we kind of established early on like are you are you producing this record? Are you the producer? To what degree do you want others to be producing with you? And you said this I, this is my you know I'm kind of coming back on the scene with this one. I want this to be mine. And it was. I took that to heart, and so I, I I was really leaning on you for direction in terms of you know I just I I explained that I played the drums on this record, and uh, it was very helpful to have you in here conducting me essentially during the the drum tracking. I'm thinking of remember we belong together. Yeah, yeah. You were in there with your arms waving around and <laughs> and like beatboxing things. Yeah. Um, and in, I've, in fact, I think I was I was being a little syncopated on the kick and snare on that song, and you put the kibosh on that. You said, "Let's just I, what I'm looking for here is just I don't know." You know where I was. I was trying to hit some of some of the more the accented stuff on your vocals, but you and it was a good call, great call, just to do that driving beat. Mm. Yeah, I uh, I do remember that. I remember that that uh, drum track and then the drum track for for uh, Punch Spiker being similar. I was hearing more with the drums. Usually, drums are the thing that I hear the least. I think drums and drums are the toughest to communicate in general because you can't sing them. And you know, you got, I guess you just have to beatbox them, like you said I did. Yeah. But uh, drums, to me, I hear it, but it's hard to kind of get it out of my head sometimes. So for the most part, on pockets of clouds, I think on Punch Spiker, you were 
you were being a, a, a human drummer, and I had got this was demoitis. I guess this is a good <laughs> human drummer. Yeah, I'd been listening to the the Garage Band. I think his name is Kyle, the Garage Band drummer, who is he never misses, and he plays the same. I mean, just a loop. You know, he's like an eight bar, sixteen bar loop. Yeah. So he, I'd gotten used to a, kind of a real monotonous groove behind that tune, uh-huh. and you were doing more because that's what a human does, you know? Yeah. And so I think that was when I, I do remember where we kind of had to like have a conversation about parring back and, and really choose, like there are only a couple of fills on that song. Um, so we had to kind of choose where we wanted to do those fills and stuff like that. Yeah. And, um, just for the listener, there's a, you know, if you're, if you like music, but you don't create music, garage band, uh, you may have heard of it's, um, it's a it's a way to make music on your Mac, and there are drummers. There are like software drummers. So Kyle was mm-hmm. one of those. Yeah. You can select Kyle's like my a go-to. So- yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. There was some other some other fun drum stuff that you did. You had a real you know you were really involved in. I'm I'm thinking of the fills to Evangeline. Mm, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And we I remember. You be you having a very specific idea of when you wanted the fills and also what they would be. So I was like, okay, dude, here's what we'll do. I'm just gonna, you know, we played it to a click. So I was just like, I'm just gonna do. I'm just gonna. Yeah. I'm just gonna record a shit ton of fills, and we're gonna have a bank of fills, and we can just plug them in which ones you like, and we can plug them in where you'd like. And that was pretty I fun. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I never done. I never recorded drums like that before. Neither have um, I. <laughs> that was, well, dude, I, you did it like, I thought that was just the way you worked. So you did it. So it was like what you, I guess just what you immediately realized was going to be the quickest way to get from point A to point B. Hmm. How did we start those? Did, did did I play a scratch track and then you would cut drums to to the track? Yeah. So basically, you you came in here with an acoustic. We would we would uh, plug you in in the jam room. We would feel it out together, see if we were getting a generally a good feel. Then we would pair down, and you had the demos, of course. Um, and we would ju- I would just record some stuff, and then we'd come back in the control in the control room, and you would play on top of them and see how they felt. Mm-hmm. And so it was an interesting process of uh, building from there, you know. Yeah, I like. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to think of if that's just like, is, is that a good way to do drums always? It just it worked so well for that that batch of songs. Well, maybe I've, it. Go ahead. I was just gonna say I think it's a, a little bit of a function of being the engineer, also, and so I yeah. can't. I just can't like. Yeah, be here you would have and to push. <laughs> you would have to push record. You would push record, and then you'd run behind the kit in the other room. Yeah, yeah. And so there'd be like thirty seconds on each side of like you, we would hear your footsteps exactly. coming closer to the microphones, and then your footsteps running away from the microphones. Yeah, you used to laugh as I was. <laughs> I would press the record button and then dash in to the well, other I think, room. I think putting the the drums together like that. I mean, maybe it's not ideal. It's definitely not the way you'd want to do it if you were a band. Uh, but when you when you're a drummer like you were who has never played the songs before. I think mm-hmm. that's the quickest way to get a good track is to like 
especially with fills and with the groove too. You just, you play, you know, you find the yes, eight or 16 bars that you really like. And then you like, if you want to loop those, you do. And then you find places to put the fills. Yeah. It, it, it depends on how good the drummer is. And like, luckily you're a fucking amazing drummer. Oh, thanks, man. It was, I guess it was, thanks for saying that. I guess it was sort of half human, half Well, the, what, robot. what became, what we got was all human, right. but it, it kind of, we almost did it like, almost like sampling, but, but not, not nearly to that, like not beat by beat. We didn't go like that, but, um, yeah, it's more it was swaths it, of sections. Yeah. Yeah. But it worked, dude. I mean, if we had sat there and tried to get full takes, it would have taken three or four times as long. Yeah. It was a real interesting way to do it. I guess I, I want to continue sort of chronologically in terms of how we tracked. So yeah, we got the drums and then we brought in Chris McQueen. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about Chris, how you know Chris, and what you were looking for from him, and how he worked out. So Chris McQueen is a guy that I first met. Nello, the band that I was in when I was, when I, we, we kind of officially started it in college. Nello was made up of me and then five guys from Dallas. Matt Raglan was the other sort of co-founder and he really put the the first iteration of the band together it was, they were friends of his from high school and then we went to ut austin and the rest of those guys went to university of north texas um, and all studied at the jazz program there which is one of the best jazz programs in the country and so um they were just surrounded by extremely talented musicians and chris was the most uh, in my opinion the most talented um, he was also the hardest worker. And I'm saying all this from seeing him drunkenly practice in a corner twice while everybody else was getting <laughs> wasted. So, <laughs> But uh, as far as I saw, he was always working in school um, while everybody else was par- kind of partying around him. It was, it was kind of crazy to watch. Like, I, from what I remember, his bathroom, I mean, his, his bedroom was, you had to go through his bedroom to get to the bathroom. So he would just be sitting in his bedroom practicing like all these crazy scales. I don't even know the names of, you know, just like just running up and down the neck and uh-huh. almost completely tuning everybody and the whole party out. But every time you'd have to go to the bathroom, you'd pass Chris, who was just in his <laughs> own fucking world. <laughs> and he would just be on his bed, just playing, just ripping his, his guitar apart. That was the extent of us kind of interacting was him watching me stumble to the bathroom to try to pee out the 35th beer that I'd had. What a great um, story that is. Yeah. So then um, flash forward like probably at least six years, he got he got into Nello. Uh, we lost our bass player, and so we needed a bass player. And so Chris, who is the best guitar player that I know, didn't even play guitar in Nello. He played bass for like six. He was kind of, he was never an official member. I don't think, I don't think he would tell you that. I think he was, he was, he was a, a, a prolonged substitute, but he was, <laughs> he was, uh, he was great. And he, he's in a lot of our pictures. So as far as, you know, as far as I'm concerned, anybody that was in that band for more than like five gigs was part of the band. So right. yes, Chris was at one point a member of Nello. But he never played guitar. I like he, that designation, prolonged substitute. <laughs> At what point do you graduate from prolonged substitute to member? It's a, it's a I don't know, one. man. I think it's paperwork. It's, it yeah, is paperwork. Like... <laughs> uh, but yeah, Chris is a juicy bass player, too. And he mm-hmm. played bass on this on this puppy. 
Yeah, so that was like my big plan was to save as much money as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to do that by hiring as few musicians as possible. So I figured Chris is so quick too most of the time that it, I knew that it was just going to, I was going to save money by having somebody in there that, that could play so well guitar and bass. Um, he was kind of my first thought for guitar anyways, and then I knew that he had played bass with us in Nello, so I just figured, I asked him first, I think, like, would you feel comfortable doing both? And he, he said, yeah. Yeah, he was probably like, yeah. Yeah, cool, man. <laughs> He's Whatever. the most mellow, low-stress <laughs> studio dude. Yeah. Um, but do, So he came in, and did we do bass first with him? We would spend a day on drums for each song pretty much. Yeah. And then like a day or two per song on overdubs, on bass, guitar, overdubs, and vocals. So I think we would build the tunes out. We would get the drums first, and then I would probably have a really shitty scratch track, a uh, guitar scratch. Yeah. That's that, another thing mm-hmm. about... That was another thing about making this that this EP that we're talking about is that I had just started playing guitar. so And like, you're on there. A little bit, a little bit. Most of it was just scratch, and then we over, and then we went back and had Chris do it. But there are a couple of my tracks that yeah, are I think, there. I thought we kept a few, but I just my feel was not there. So that was another problem. Was was everybody trying to? I think that was a place where possibly the demos helped. Was that I had had enough time at home to to piece together decent feeling guitar parts. So whenever we were wondering about feel. We would listen to the demos. I, I, I vaguely remember that, at least with bass. Um, and then he cut bass from there, and then we would go back and do acoustics and then electrics. And yeah, I, as I recall, the bass was pretty quick. He nailed he nailed it relatively quickly, and then yeah. we had a a good stretch of time where you were really particular about the guitars and and really wanting to get the tone going in, such to, to the point where I didn't really have to EQ very much or do much of anything because he had his own effects going on. I mean, he had a huge board, so we did no effects in post. Um, And he had, I wanted to bring up this thing he was using called the Ebo, which Mm -hmm. I had never heard of. Tell, talk to us about that. Yeah. So Chris had always played bass with Nello, but when we made um, the, the last record that we put out, he was there to, as kind of a second guitarist or a third guitarist, I guess. And was I, that was when I realized that he how good he was at sort of the added production elements that you can create with with an electric guitar if you know how to use your pedals and all your paraphernalia correctly. And uh, during the Nello sessions, he broke out this thing called an Ebo, which is it more or less the reason it's called Ebo. It's an electronic bow. It kind of simulates the idea of dragging a violin bow across your guitar strings. But, but what it does in actuality is it, it creates a sonic vibration. It's battery powered and you hold it over the string and it, it vibrates the string and kind of swells it. it you can hear it on like a lot of Dan, Daniel Lenoir stuff. Um, and a lot of the Coldplay used to use it a lot. I don't know if they still do like a lot of their, swelly sort of like atmospheric guitar parts the stuff that you hear in the background is created by an ebo um but yeah it creates these huge kind of sonic beds these palettes that make the songs sound really wide 
And I wanted to use that as an element for sure. The, so the Ebo is essentially like a little magic box that you just hover yeah. over the guitar and it does strange things. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a lipstick case or something. Yeah. And you turn it on and it, yeah, it creates some sort of some sort of either magnetic or sonic vibration. And so it vibrates the strings at like a super high level, like at, at a super high rate. And it creates this like ghostly uh, atmospheric texture. That's, that's badass. I love it. Yeah, you can hear it pretty well on Spellbound, actually. Let's take a listen to that again. So that drone note you hear right there, that's what the Ebo is. You'll hear it move around later in the song, but that's what it sounds like. And uh, do you remember when <laughs> we were... It was pretty much a given that we were going to... At least the Ebo would come up when we were tracking. And one day Chris arrived without his Ebo. And you're yeah, like, okay, so let's bust... About it. God. <laughs> We're like, all right, so let's bust out the Ebo and let's see what, see if that can fit in this song. And he's like, oh, I didn't bring it. Yeah. And you're like, well, why not? And he's like, well, <laughs> I'll have to go home. And you're like, oh, you were really kind of pissed. <laughs> yeah, man. It's like, what are we supposed to do for an hour and a half while you drive to your house and go get your Ebo that we talked about like 10 times yeah. about you bringing? Chris, if you're listening, um, we just sat here twiddling our fucking thumbs. <laughs> I'm sure we figured something to do. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's the, yeah, that's what you get with Chris, a genius who is sometimes a little bit too in the moment. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that assessment. Well, if you're listening, Chris, we, we got nothing but love for you. But that one day with Ebo did, it was, that was not, that wasn't a highlight. Yeah, we do have nothing but love for you, but you fucked up that day, man. <laughs> uh, okay, so finally... We've been making the listener wait, but finally, we are to the vocals. Um, and I'm just going to give a little preamble here. Well, the truth is, I don't really remember that much about tracking your vocals other than you pretty much knocked them out in a very short amount of time. That's my memory of it, and it was done very fast. But um, one funny thing was that you're so in tune with your voice that there was one one time I'll never forget was that you stepped into the booth at the beginning of a session, sang a few lines, you pulled open the curtain, and you just turned to me and go, it's not going to happen today. Can we reschedule? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, there's a dude who knows his body. Um, what do you remember about the vo vocal process? Am I remembering that you just kind of did it and it was done? Uh, well, there were a couple that... So I was having a lot of vocal trouble then. Um, not once, Not once I got to the right spot. Like there was one day where you gave me some, um, Casamigos Añejo and oh. that like, that sort of like woke my voice up. Yeah. <laughs> that was so good. That's so, that was the day I did the Shiloh road vocal and the Shiloh road vocal is all one take. Was and it? it was, it was buzzed on, uh, on a little bit of Casamigos Añejo. That's shit. It will get you where you need to go. Hell yeah. Uh, but I was having, I had the, the like through the voice, the show, the voice, like even before that, at the like in the waning years of my tenure with Nello, I uh, had this weird vocal tension thing that I could not get a handle on, and it was pretty sporadic, and I, I've kind of finally just diagnosed it as more or less psychosomatic. Um, it was just like I, I, it got to the point where I just figured that it was where I was carrying my stress because 
the stress was compounding due to the fact that I couldn't sing as well as I wanted to. So I feel like I, I think that makes sense that I was just kind of carrying a lot of that stress in my throat. Ah, yeah. Um, so all the way through the, the recording of the EP, there would be days where I knew, like th- that day that I walked in, I probably was already a little bit up and like too much in my head to begin with because I'd, I'd probably come like driven on the way over. I I'd tried to warm up and it wasn't working. And um, so I probably walked in kind of already defeated. Um, and then there were some days, and this still happens where it'll just be where it needs to be and I'll be able to get a bunch of stuff done. The other thing that's happened in the in the intervening two years is that if I have days like that, I don't get so in my head and just kind of, I've kind of learned how to sing through it a little bit better. I think people think of the voice differently than they do an instrument, but it really is just an instrument. You know, they think yeah. like, what? Just sing. It's a voice. We talk all the time. Like we have a voice. We just use it. But it's like it, it, it in the same way that there are days when it's just not happening on drums or for someone on guitar, it happens to the voice too. And most of the time it's, it's, it's something to do with the head, but sometimes there's just things going on with your muscles or the way your body feels. Definitely. Yeah. And then Austin, you've got to deal with allergies and, um, there are like the cold or the dryness. There's so many things that can affect a vocal performance. The main thing I learned through the experience making the record that we made is, is to kind of like take what the day gives you and do your best with it and, and not, not be so precious with vocals. Cause other thing I've learned is that uh, you're clearly always going to be your biggest critic, no matter. I mean, if it's a drum fill or a vocal roll or something, you know, like mm-hmm. you could have always caught it more cleanly or it could have felt a little bit better. And nobody else cares. They just they don't like they just don't hear it the way that you do. You you're, you. I, I sometimes think that they're actually not hearing the same thing. That's how much our perception feeds what we what we hear. Exactly. Yeah, so I, that's, as I've gotten, I think that's just maturity, but but just knowing that, you know, kind of take what you think and how critical you're being of yourself and and dial it back about 75% or maybe even 90%, and then that's where everybody else is. That's how critical everybody, everybody else just wants to hear you sing. They think you have a good voice, just sing. Or yeah. they, they, they just want to hear you drum. You're a great drummer, <laughs> just drum. Like, they don't give a shit about your little, you know, new, like neuro, neuroses, you know? They are unattached, and so they can yeah. actually enjoy themselves. <laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> Whereas we do not. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's so true. But, uh, and you know, by the way, I thought, I was contemplating, like, should we talk about the voice stuff? Like, the show, The Voice? And I kind of... I, you're probably talked out on The Voice, but before we do a deep dive on the song, can you just give us a little bit? Because the listeners want to know what you know, a little bit about what it was like on a big TV show. Yeah, man. I, dude, I still love talking about it. I had okay. a great time with it. I, I, I was at a point in my life where it was just kind of... Not exactly all gravy because I, there's still so much that I want to do. So I, that's really not the right turn of phrase. But when I when I did it, I I, I didn't have anything to lose. I, I had been out of music for three years, and so um, it was to me almost a lark in that I had no expectations and I, I hardly wanted to do it. I kind of had gotten talked into it by um, my wife and um, a couple of friends who had just kind of continued to encouraged me to do it. One of the friends, actually Freddie Fletcher's wife, who was our, our, the kind of the co-manager of Nello, um, who 
ran the record label with him and continues to help run Arlen. Pretty much does run Arlen Studios. Lisa does. Um, she was the one who got me the the private audition to begin that journey. If I had got if I had had to like go to the convention center and start there, hmm. I don't think I ever would have done that. Um, so I was lucky that Lisa had a connection that got me to like. It's just the stage beyond the cattle call like convention center. Okay, uh, you just kind of get a buy for that first round. Mm-hmm. Um, so that started that that whole kind of journey, and then. It was it was crazy, dude. I mean, they they they, you're there for three, for at least it depends on how long you go. I keep going, obviously, but my like tenure, like my trip through the through the uh, through the show kept me on for like three one month chunks that were over the course of about uh, eight months. So I was there for like all of October. And then all of January and then all of March. Wow. I didn't yes. realize it went that, it spanned that um, time. Yeah, that January chunk was more like six weeks. So you're just, you're at a hotel in Los Angeles. And if you're not working, you can't, they really don't like you to leave the hotel. I might not, I, I can't remember <laughs> what, our, what our NDA is supposed to cover here. Oh, but yeah. I, I, th- nobody cares. Nobody's listening. Uh, I mean, none of those guys are. Um, Nobody's are, listening hello. to this podcast. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> I'm just no, kidding. That's not, that's not what I, I, know, I, I know. Nobody I know. from the network. <laughs> I know, that, I know. So, and even if they are, I think, I don't think I'm saying anything that is like telling like too much. But yeah, you're there forever. Um, you make great friends. They treat you like, like, like a rock star. I mean, you get, if you got as far as I did, you, you get your own like really nice set of in-ears to do like your in-ear monitors instead of having floor monitors while you're, while you're doing your, your tapings, um, which is really cool. Yeah, man. It, it, it's, you, you learn a lot about yourself in any of those kinds of high pressure. I was never a good enough athlete to feel like, you know, the bases loaded two outs, bottom of the ninth, you're down by three, that kind of thing. But this is the but musical equivalent? Kind of, yeah. It's like, what are you going to do, man? Are you you want to run. Like, you want to, like, say, hey, man, I left something in my car. I'll, uh, I'll be right back. And then, <laughs> just split. And just never. Like, your fight or flight is so real in the moments where you're kind of standing in the wings and they're, they're about to pretty much, like, it, the equivalent of action, you know? And then it's kind of your time to get out. It's really hard to, to sort of disconnect yourself from how many people are either going to see this or I got far enough to where I was there for a live, two live shows. And so there's like 10 million people watching while you're, while you're doing it. Unreal. And so you just, it's like a great learning experience. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'd still can envision it right now and just the, the, the kind of inner monologue you have to have when you're going from, sitting at your house watching TV to three months later being in front of like network TV cameras. Um, you just have to like, there's a lot of like uh, wrangling you have to do with your own psyche in order to kind of get, at least for me, maybe some people are just born to do that, but I have to, I really was getting in my way a lot. I learned a lot about myself, I guess, hmm. like easy way to say it. Um, I wanted to ask about the... Uh the montage situation, which is just a funny little lesson about life. There was the let him fly, right? Yeah. That yeah. one got montaged. You got a good memory. Yeah. 
But so yeah, that one got montaged. Uh, it's a Patty Griffin song, right? And yeah. but but it had huge, you know, had huge success. That must have felt good, but also shitty about the montage, you know. Yeah. So so that that that's what they call. Uh, if you watch the show, anytime you or if you don't, I'll explain it to you. It's like, uh, you know, they'll show a bunch of full performances, and then they'll kind of do this flash, like uh, wipe across the screen, and it'll say also perform tonight. You know, Reed Umstadt, who who went on to the next round uh, against Jordan Sparks or whatever, and uh, yeah, so they'll just show like ten seconds of your performance, and what that means to you is just, oh, good, Reed went on to the next round. But what that means for the person who was on, who spent like a month of their life working on that song and then putting everything they could into it, recording it, and just like counting the days, telling their whole family to watch, uh, and then for it to be kind of like um, sort of swept to the side and just used as like a, a commercial bumper um, really, really sucks. And that was like the the worst part about that one was that that was – so I did – I think I did four songs on that show that, that like – that we recorded. And so that's three – I think it was four. Maybe it had been five. But that was by far the one the the performance and the recording that I was the most proud of, um, and it was the one that I couldn't wait to have to show people. Yeah, um, you, you know, like on YouTube, send them the link. I just was really, really proud of that. Um, but you so, got them on the back end because yeah, it, yeah, you know, it's like fuck you guys. I told you, you know, like yeah. this is what it did really well on iTunes. Yeah, Must so I was at good. I yeah, it did feel good. It's yeah, I was I was like in I was in my hotel room by myself when that happened, and I was so bummed out. Uh, You're in such like a kind of like pressure cooker that that was just a, like for sure that was the only sort of negative experience I had with that show. But they do they warn you as much as possible that that kind of shit is going to happen. Like this is not there's their big line was at some point in this process. You're going to go back to your hotel room. You're going to throw your bag down and you're going to say, somebody is cheating and this is not fair. <laughs> really? And they said yeah, that? Yeah. That's and, great. And that's just, that's the way at some point everybody feels, even though it's a hundred percent not true. Um, at a certain point, you just like draw the short stick and I did. But uh, yeah, it ended up turning out okay. We started watching the iTunes numbers and it somehow, uh, just from that little montage, it was like a 10 second blip of the performance that I did, it ended up charting on iTunes, which was like, ended up becoming more of a celebration than of a, you know, like a disappointment. Oh, it's a fascinating experience you had because, uh, you know, you think of someone getting that opportunity and you think it's just rainbows and sunshine, but it's, it's, um, it, it's tough also. I got far enough to like, for like technically to, to have accomplished what I needed to accomplish. If I was going to try to parlay that into something in the future, I pretty much got out what I needed to. If I had gone on further, I would have gotten more exposure. But, and I would have, like, I was having so much fun, especially once we got to those live scenarios. Those live scenarios were insane. So to, to do that for another week would have been really, really fun. I just was having a blast. And my whole family was too. Like, they would travel out for the performances. And so we were just having, I mean, it's, 
it was the time of our lives. Like it yeah. was so much fun. So to get kicked off when I did or excused, we call it when I was excused from the voice. We don't say kicked off in my family. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> so to, get, to get excused when I did, you're right. Like I had accomplished more, way more than I thought I would. I didn't think I was going to get past the blind the first round. And then I was up against somebody so talented in both of the subsequent rounds that I just, every time I got through, it was like, well, this is, everything else is not just going to be icing on the cake because I, I didn't think I was going to get this far. So, you know. That's a good feeling. Yeah. It was, it was awesome, man. I, I, I was wh- Jenna whatever, out there with you? Yeah. Yeah. She came a lot. She wasn't allowed to stay at the hotel. They were super strict about like no guests shit. and stuff. Yeah. Wow. Um, we might have bent those rules a couple of times, but yeah, they like they wanted you to stay on the property. They really didn't want you to leave the hotel unless you were going to shoot something or something. Was like it like that. an NBC hotel? No, no, it was uh, it was a couple of different hotels in in LA. Cool. Yeah, but I think though that anybody that has something bad to say about the voice. I, I, I've heard all of those things, and I probably said a lot of them before I went out and did it. Um, but two things. One is, if you are going to be so critical about something, then go try to do it and see how far you get. <laughs> and then the other thing is uh, that I think you just have to have a, the right perspective about what you're wanting to get out of it. I mean, it, if you think you're going to become the next Justin Timberlake or something by being on a reality show, you're you're probably mistaken, especially at this point in the reality show game. So if you think you're going to have a good time and meet some people and maybe get like a phone call when it's all over and somebody says, hey, you want to come demo some tunes or, you know, if you have realistic expectations, then I think you, you'll, you'll, you'll end the experience on a positive rather than a negative. And also it was helpful that I was like 33 when I did it. Um, you know, if I'd done hmm. it when I was 23, I think I would have been – it's just your perspectives are totally different when you're younger. Good point. Good point. You had uh, you were at a point in your life where uh, you were calibrating things at a healthy level. Totally. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Even though it still sucked to get excused. No doubt. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thanks for thanks for talking about that uh, with us. I know, like I said, you've probably talked about it ad nauseum, but that's I think that's a really interesting thing for people to be let in on. That experience. Yeah, I think it for sure is too, like to get a little peek behind the curtain. And yeah. I, I I love talking about it. It makes me feel good that people li- you know, want to hear about it. I, yeah. I love talking about it. So now I think we should go a little deep dive into, I, is it okay if I choose? Totally. Okay. I want to do Shiloh Road. Okay. You were talking earlier about how you think of songs and your songs in particular and your songwriting as a cinematic endeavor in, in colors, sort of. And that seems like, Shiloh Road seems like a good example of that. Yeah. Um, there's a sweeping feel to that one. There's some really interesting sounds going on. Um, the Ebo has a lot to do with that. And also the lyrics have a great story. Let's go with the lyrics first. Can you walk us through what it's about? Sure. Man, I, this is I dude. We should do this every day. I love talking about myself so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun, isn't it? Wait till I ask you questions about the dream, and then I just get to hear you say how great the dream is. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. I'll I'll do. I'll I'll tell you the truth, but, but it's all going to be good things. But first, you um, tell um, us about the lyrics to Shiloh wrote. So 
so the one thing that did come out of the voice actually was I had a, I had already kind of had a connection with a guy in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, named Rodney Hall, whose dad Rick had started the studio there called Fame, um, and Fame and Muscle Shoals Sound are the two studios there that have put Muscle Shoals on the map as kind of um, the creators of a certain type of soul and funk sound that came out of the '60s and '70s. And Rick was a was a major player on a on the production level as well as on the studio ownership level. So when I was still in Nello, we were living in Athens, but and Athens, Georgia, and played a, a blues festival that was more like just a, a music festival in Florence, Alabama, which is just across the river from Muscle Shoals. And uh, so Rodney said, "Hey, y'all need to come meet my dad, Rick." And we were I was probably twenty three, and we were just like, "Who the hell?" Where, where the hell are we? What is this <laughs> tiny little town? And who the hell is this guy? And who is his dad? So we had no idea what was about, like what we were getting into. And so we, we, uh, we, we, we went to his studio and it's, it's, it's fame studios. I mean, it's like, it's like going into a time machine and it, 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 like nothing has really changed since probably 1975. Really? Yeah. That's so it's cool. it like, it like glows with that, like, uh, like 40 watt glow instead of LED. Like, yeah. it, you know, it's like, it's like incandescent bulbs or whatever it's called, like that, that more yellow glow, you know, like everything just feels, everything just feels like a, like just warmer. And so you'll walk into like, they had, a, they have two different cutting rooms and one's the, like the A room, I think is what they call it. But you walk in, you see this piano and then you'll look at a picture on the wall next to the piano and it's Aretha Franklin playing a piano. And then you look down at the piano and you realize it's that piano. It's that piano. Yeah. Oh, man. There's a picture of Greg Allman playing a, uh, uh, not a dulcimer. What's the thing that's like? Oh, what is that damn thing? It's not a dulcimer. Harpsichord. 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 <laughs> yeah. There's the same thing happened. There's like, there's just pictures everywhere. Jackie Wilson's cutting a vocal and then you see exactly where he was standing. So anyways, that was a really, really cool experience. Anyways, Rodney had, I guess, seen me on The Voice, and so he got in touch with me afterwards and said, hey, they have a publishing arm, and they have... I was looking for songs. At that point, I still didn't really feel strong enough or comfortable enough or whatever the word is to try to write my own songs. I was just thinking, I'll find some songs, and then I'll sing them really well, and then I'll put my <laughs> record out or whatever, you know? Yeah. And so he was like, well, come write with our guys we'll see what happens. Just come out here, like no strings attached. Just, I've got some like guys from Nashville that come up to and write at our studio and just come up and we'll put you up for a couple of days and just come out here and write and see what happens. So on my way to Muscle Shoals, I drove there and um, about an hour before I got to Muscle Shoals, I started seeing signs for Corinth, Mississippi. And Corinth is where my mom grew up and where I had grown up with my family going like twice a year just for holidays and stuff like that. And I had no idea I was about, I hadn't been there in, since my grandfather had died. So it had been, it had been probably five or six years. And before that five or six years, it had been years and years. It, it was a place that almost solely existed in my childhood memory. And so I just like, I couldn't see much because it was foggy and it was dark. And so I was, I just kind of made a mental point that I needed to get back there to kind of just retread memory lane. 
And so on a day off from riding with the guys that I was riding with in Muscle Shoals, I went back to to uh, to Corinth and just like walked. My de- my grandfather had owned a, a men's clothing store like that was kind of in the old center of town. It's a tiny Mississippi Southern town. So I went back there. It wasn't it wasn't a clothing store anymore, but it was like the footprint was still there. You could kind of still see. Oh, so all cool. these memories started, all these memories started <clears throat> kind of rushing back, and that's what that that's what that song came out of was sort of the first line is uh, driving these roads with the ghosts of my youth. I think there's a there's a there's a road that runs through the middle of Corinth called Shiloh Road. That's why the song's named that. And that's that's kind of where you, where you, where I'm setting the scene from is just sort of I don't know gliding through all of these childhood memories. And so that's what the song's about. Riding along the coast of my youth, all in the summers and fall yellow. For magic that lights up the dark Sweet southern rain Rushed out of green man Drown out this pain I need to go home Sweet southern soul I love you completely
I have a lot of notes. Let's deep dive. Deep dive. Uh, the next thing I wanted to say, which I think I guess we addressed, was that this is a good example of the use of the ebo. Yes. Which definitely. sounds almost exactly like a violin. Yeah, it's up there. There's also violin on there, so it's kind of confusing. Oh. <laughs> okay. That's a that was a violin I heard. Yeah, but there's ebo on there. There's it's in the background. Okay. The stuff that sounds more guttural, I think, on this tune is ebo stuff. The violin is what's up top, but there might be some ebo up there too. He did a lot of like sonic template mm -hmm. laying in the background on this song. This one in Spellbound, I think, are my actually be cool is a fun one on a production stand from a production standpoint too. I think those three are my favorite. Listening back from just purely. What we what we accomplished per, like from a production standpoint, I think this song is my favorite song on the record. I like the song. The is best. it cool? Glad I chose it. We'll do since you referenced "Be Cool." We'll take them out on "Be Cool" at the end of the podcast. Okay, cool. Um, but back to "Shallow Road." Yeah, I, f I had forgotten that uh, there was a violin on this. Let's give a shout out to who did the violin. Christabel Lynn. She did the violin, and then I've only met him that one day, and. I don't remember his name. I, it's Chris. I think his name is Chris. Um, it is Chris. I can't remember his last name, but he's he's uh, he came recommended by Christabel, and he he played the uh, the double bass, the the string, the the bass. Oh my god! I remember, remember that, that guy? guy. Yeah, he was awesome. Yeah, he just came in and did his thing and pieced out. He pieced the fuck out after he yeah. nailed it. He was. He looked like... Uh, so, do we know his last name? <laughs> uh, let me see if I can find it. Actually, I don't even know where I'd begin. I don't even to, know. To, yeah, to, so like, let's just speak freely of him. And we're... I mean, you know, he's a great guy. He did his job. Oh, he's awesome. Totally yeah. professional. But he came in here like... <laughs> his, like, sunglasses were half on. Yeah, man. He, whether or he not he night. was, he seemed... Yeah, Violently hung over. <laughs> Violently hung over. <laughs> but he he played beautifully and um, yeah. he nailed it. And we and there's that big deep um, yeah notes the note towards the end. Mm -hmm. Wow, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, yeah, that was the only time I've ever met him. I mean, I I had text. I, it's the only time I've ever talked to him. I texted with him to get him there. And then he was like, we probably said like three sentences to each other. He just did what he needed to do and got the hell out of there. Yeah. He walked in and he's like, where should I, where should I plug in? Do you want me to go direct? Am I in there? It's like, yeah. 
But okay. he was involved. He was not aloof or absent-minded. He he no, came no. in and he had an opinion on his sound, and we comped a little bit. Um, it, you know, clearly what you know, he took pride in his work, but it, he was just a funny character. Well, yeah, he'd had the song. I'd sent him the demo, and so he just already had a part worked out, and it it was a great part. So we didn't have like the most input. The most time was spent on how to properly mic that that huge fucking double bass thing. Right. Just there's so much string noise, especially with those low notes. I remember kind of struggling with that. Yeah, that was fun, and I remember turning to you in the control room, being like, "Who is this guy? Do you know this guy?" You're like, "I don't know. I just met him. He's working out though, isn't he?" I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> yeah, he was just somebody that Christabel knew. I'm really glad that it worked out. But yeah, Chris, wherever you are, if you're listening. How's it going, bud? I hope you're doing okay. Yeah, <laughs> how's it going, bud? All of which is to say, um, the violin, the stringness of it all, lends itself to that old, you know, like it's kind of civil warry. Exactly. You know? Yes, that that's that is very astute. So Shiloh is also a battle. Did you know this? Mm-mm. So Shiloh was a civil war battle, Battle of Shiloh, and it, it happened about 20 miles outside of Corinth, and Corinth became the staging ground for the battle, at first for the Confederacy, and then when they lost the battle uh, for the North, they came in and, and occupied Corinth for a, at least at least a year, I think, before the Confederacy took it back at some point. So the, the whole feel of that song, the, that song started with just me noodling around on the guitar with the capo really high up on the neck to where it almost sounds like a mandolin. Yeah. Which takes you right to that kind of, mm. that period-y sort of, not, it's not, it's folky, it's blue, it's like hillbilly music or something, you know? Yeah. It's not bluegrass because it's not quick enough, but um, it's that sort of, the uh, Alison Krauss arena of, of, of music, you know? Sure. Like, oh brother, where, where art thou? Where, oh brother, where art thou? <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's where I wanted to go with it once I had that guitar part and then my, that's when my mind immediately went to those experiences that I just had in Corinth um, and so that song came out really quickly once I once I got that feel together but that's my primary vision in my head is like early morning dew and fog on those I've been to that battlefield and it's just this beautiful these beautiful rolling hills you would never know that thousands of men died there yeah um but it's and like if you get there early enough you can still see the fog laying on the hills and so you just kind of it's just very very uh it's peaceful it's kind of eerie but it's just beautiful and so that's what i've that's what i think of in my mind when i hear those strings is some it's like a string quartet sitting on top of a hill while we're 100 yards away and we can hear them just kind of like <laughs> cascading yeah. cascading through the hills on that on that battlefield. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about this song is that the arrangement and what your voice does in terms of how it swells and trades with the strumming and the the violin that comes after the rolling nature of that arrangement mimics that landscape like what you were saying. Cool. Yeah, that's that's like it's a great description of what's going on there. You remember how much automation we had on those strings? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, now I do. Now that you, it looked, it looked like, uh, yeah, like some sort of Wall Street graph. It did, it did look like a Wall Street graph. Uh, <laughs> maybe we'll post a photo of the automation 
on Instagram and Twitter and whatnot. But because we wanted them to do what you just described, like weave in and out of the vocal, so we had we would have to tuck them while I was singing, and then we wanted them to yes. rise. Yeah. yeah, and I, as I said in the beginning on your intro. You know what you want. You know exactly what you want. And we went back and forth on those automations and those <laughs> notes for days. Yeah. You would you would send things like, and I don't know how, like, what sense you had of dBs, but you were you were telling me, like, dB adjustments. When, for the yeah. listener, dB is decibel. Uh, it's a unit of volume. And so Reed yeah, was I've... saying, like, tuck, tuck that in another dB or two from 342 to 347. So that's not how most people operate with you, Coke? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I would say it's atypical. Yeah. You know, usually I... people, usually especially singers, this is what I found very interesting about you, is singers tend to listen to their voice in a mix, and that's all they'll comment on. Oh, wow. But you... You your mix notes spanned the the entire breadth of all the instrumentation. That yeah, cool. the the voice. Well, it's tricky sometimes, but I feel like once we once you find where the voice sits, that's really all you. That's all you can say about a voice. Um, it's just kind of does it does it feel like part of the track or doesn't it? But with stuff like strings that are like that are so swimmy anyways and swell so naturally, like and like the, the dynamics of them are so difficult. Just. It, it, strings are tough. I feel like with when you're when you're trying to automate them and get them out of the way of other stuff. So let's. I just want to wrap up with a little bit of some you know memory lane stuff, and this is more like social memories, not not uh, mix or or music related. But uh-huh. uh, one of my favorite memories was how giddy, positively giddy we were about our use of the uh, castanets. Oh my God! <laughs> and how we just thought we were the bee's knees for uh, well a well placed castanet. Man, so like my parents will play the EP a lot when we're over at their house, and every time I hear a castanet in my mind, I say that it's a great sounding castanet. Yeah, dude. I mean, Me too. I f- I feel that every time I listen to it, and I do listen to it frequently because uh, I'm I'm proud of the record. And I know that went by quickly, but for the listener, the castanet would be the thing that goes... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I remember also, you you did not gloss over the minutiae of this. And you would obsess as much about the castanet as you would about your own voice. And I love that about you. And um, we were careful not to overuse it, just give enough of it to make it a little theme throughout the album. I think what we did with the castanet if I remember correctly, is we would do it as much as we, like every time we heard it, it, we would do it. And then we would listen back and be like, we got to, like we would pull back about 60% of them. Yeah. Because it's a tasteful thing until it becomes like mariachi hour. Right. And we we would dial it back in terms of, you know, how many, (laughs) how many castanet sounds there were. And also we would keep tucking it in. Find yeah. that sweet spot volume-wise as well, dude. You you work magic on those castanets, though. The the re, like the the reverb you used where they were in the mix. It was and the performance too. Those were always you. It's not as easy to play a castanet as you might think. Yeah, no, listener, I'm good at a castanet. If oh, you yeah. need one, hire me. It's really just a gaga da ba. Yeah, a, but it's a triplet and. Don't don't sell yourself short, dude. <laughs> 
It is not just a Guga da Ba. There's so much else going on in that performance. Guga da Ba. But yeah, you do have to verb out those um, those captionettes. Yeah, they kind of sound yeah they like sound like little firecrackers or something. It's awesome. Yeah, you got to put them way back there. One more thing though, before I'm gonna I'm gonna rewind before I get your, you know, warm and fuzzy memories about being here at the Dream. That chord, bef- at the end of Shiloh Road. Yeah, that's a good move. What do you remember? What happens there? It's like the last chord before you quick tag the ending, like da 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 yeah, yeah. da da. You know, right. Here. Yeah. So that was a mistake. That's a really glad you brought that up. I wanted to talk about that um, when we started talking about Shiloh Road because that was a mistake that I made when I was doing the uh, scratch track, the, the the acoustic scratch track. The way I'd always played it before was to go back. I guess it's the one. Just going back to the one, it's a G shape, but it, it's capoed on the seventh fret, so it's a, it's a D, I think. Um, but anyways, that's all to say that I used to play it where it would fully resolve, and I accidentally went to the C shape, which I think is the five, um, and Chris, I, I did it on accident, and then we were gonna, I was going to fix it, and then mm-hmm. you, you said, well, let's just, and then I said, well, I think we should keep that. Let me, let me, so we played it a couple more times and I said, that's, it's just more of like, you can feel the, it's more of a resolve, even though it's not the one chord, it feels more climactic to go to that chord um, there. And yeah, that's what happened. And then we, we, we retract the, I think we had to retract some stuff. um, Yeah, we did. Out of that decision, I think we did have to retract some stuff that Chris did, right? Yeah, I think so. But that changed that song. I think that 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 put a tag on the end of that tune that was much more kind of triumphant and nostalgic. It was a much better change. Triumphant, and, yeah, that's a good word for it. It's it's uh, this is sort of exalted, you know. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent, exactly. Thank, yeah. The, luckily, I I'm I was still am a shitty guitar player. <laughs> Sometimes it works out. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask you, um, well, it's a twofold question. One, uh, like a favorite memory from, from being here, and two, a favorite thing, a favorite item in this building, in this studio. It could be in the control room where you spend a lot of time, or it could be in the tracking room where there's a lot of stuff. Okay. I have two memories that jumped out. Well, memory one was... I came over to do vocals. It was uh, like an evening session. We were going to do vocals from like seven to nine or something, mm-hmm. or six to six to ten or whatever it was. But I and I, I we had just had that positive experience with the Casamigos. Yes. <laughs> and so I figured, well, if tequila works like that, then bourbon will work just the same. And so I brought a fifth of Bullet over, and. We started doing vocals, and then it started raining and thundering like crazy. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, I do. So we couldn't cut the vocals because it was the, the thunder was so loud <laughs> that uh, it was bleeding into the mics. Yeah. So then we sat down to see, you know, like, well, we're, you know, we've got this four or five hour chunk, whatever it was, carved out anyways. Let's see what we can do. And then the power went out. <laughs> so we sat down with uh, either a candle or uh, <laughs> our phone light, and we drank like almost an entire bottle of bourbon and just bullshitted. We just caught it. Like I didn't, we, 
I like for you, everybody listening, Hogan and I had met, but uh, up until that point, it had been uh, like sort of, hey, hello at rehearsals for JD's thing, mm-hmm. and then work work stuff. Like we had not had a chance to really get to know each to other to kick it. Yeah. yeah, so we we just kicked it with that bottle of bourbon. Yeah, that was and in the dark too. It was very romantic. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of dudes in the dark putting back some bourbon when the power goes out. Exactly. And then the other memory uh, is the I thought when you said attention to detail regarding the castanets, you were going to talk about the Glockenspiel. Oh, on, tell me about it. On uh, be cool. We this was a day. So if you go to the dream, especially if you cut in March or April when the weather in Austin is great, they keep all the doors open unless you're recording. <laughs> and so, uh, like, it feels so – it's just – that's one of my la- most lasting memories of that place is how natural and uh, – it just felt like 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 recording in the in, in nature it, in, in some weird way because the door was always open. It, like – and this one night, the the weather was perfect. It's just one of the my favorite kind of weather here in Austin in the spring, where it's warm but not hot at all. And we spent like two or three hours trying to figure out this Glockenspiel <laughs> part on "Be Cool." Uh, and I, I that's I, it's a point of pride for me too because I'd never played Glockenspiel before, and I think it's me playing it on the record. So I I, I got to play Glockenspiel on my album, which was fun. That's right. That's a cool thing to be able to say. And I also yeah. played Glockenspiel on my album. Yeah. You hear those ding, ding, dings? That's me. That's um, great. I really like the... So if we're going to move on to items, the first thing that popped into my head was the thunder stick. The thing that goes... Oh, yeah. What's that on? Uh, Evangeline. It is? Yeah. Um, during the horn break, uh-huh. like the... There, but in the background, it's hard. it's that thing that goes wah 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 wah. Oh, <laughs> that sounds about right. And then my other favorite thing is the bookshelf that runs across the the ceiling. The bookshelf, yeah. JD said that too. I think that's kind of the hallmark of the room, isn't it? It's you can constantly keep yourself entertained reading the the uh, all of the different titles and also. The interesting part about that is that it's functional. I didn't. I mean, I th- I just thought it was like you guys read a lot of books, but it's a dampener. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. A, it acts as a, a diffusion mechanism, so it uh, um, does things to mitigate some uh, bad sound artifacts. But um, it doubles as a pretentious exhibit of how well read we are. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Just a couple more things. I'm sure. I'm sure there are things about the album that you wish, you know. There's things about every every album that someone creates that you wish were maybe a little different, but that's the way it goes. I think you were happy with this album. It's your. It's. I remember one time you said to me, um, you said you helped me make my dream album, and it was a pun, of course, because the name of the studio. But it was such a nice thing for you to say to me, and it's really what this place is all about. I want people to to come here and be able to make their dream album and I want them to have fun making it. I want them to get the things they need in terms of, you know, a good attitude and whatnot. So when you said that, I didn't really know when we named this place, but your comment encapsulated what 
what the mission is here, so to speak. So mm-hmm. thank you for that. Yeah, I I stand by it. I I like for for where I was when when we did that, I I couldn't have asked for um, a more hospitable environment, a, like a, a more uh, loving and open-minded hogue, <laughs> uh, um, who, who like, w- like was just sort of sneakily a f- great drummer, which I didn't really know. I mean, I'd seen you, we, wait, I'd heard you drum with JD, so I had an inkling, but like your versatility was, was really shocking. Like th- those songs are so schizophrenic. Like they're, they're all kind of a different genre of me. I just had no idea what I was doing. So I just was writing whatever came to me <laughs> and you had a you found a way to kind of authentically play within like a several different genres while still having like a pretty unique drumming voice which was really cool oh, but yeah man you, I, I i don't i don't have any i can't say enough about that experience it was my first time in the driver's seat of a project and my first time recording songs that i had written on my own and i like could not be more proud of what we did. Excellent. And like I said, I listen to it frequently because I'm I'm a big fan of it. Um, I want to thank you for being on the podcast, and I wanted to end by asking what's what's next for you. I know you've been doing some cool Sunday streaming concerts from home on a consistent basis with your wife Jenna. I think it's called Keeping It Together or Keep It Together. Yeah, keep it together. Um, it's great. I, I think if um, people should be tuning into that. But tell us, tell us about your new album and also what you'd like to do um, musically once COVID is finally firmly under control and live music is in our lives again. So I did a. I've done a over the course of the last kind of half of the pandemic. I think we started in August. I recorded a new full-length album. There'll be twelve songs. We're 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 99% done. And if you have been listening, you know that there are. I have a tendency sometimes to get a little bit nitpicky. And I have <laughs> in the uh, in the mixing process, I've we've kind of not stalled, but that has just taken a lot of time because we haven't been. A, I haven't been able to be at the studio a lot because of just where we are in the world. And so it's been a lot of email back and forth. Um, but that is 99% done. I still don't have a title for it yet. I kind of was thinking about Toy Funeral, but I'm not sure that that really fits, fits the... Well, I, I want to know what you think about that. I'll send you the tracks, too. We can talk about titles. I love the name. Yeah, I guess it would depend on if it fits the vibe, but I'd love to I mean, hear it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll send you the record. We can talk about it. Um, but yeah, that'll be out whenever I want it to be. <laughs> I don't, like, I'm not in a hurry. Nobody should be in a hurry right now. You know, there's no reason exactly. to be. Exactly. So I'll, I I just want to put, I want to give that album a fair shake and really, I don't want to just dump it into the internet. You know, I want to exhaust all possibilities for distribution and and stuff like that because I'm, I'm just really proud of it. It's, 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 you know, it's a full length album of, of stuff that I wrote and it's just, uh, it's kind of crazy. I, 10 years ago, five years ago, I would not have pegged myself as somebody who was capable of that. And so I'm, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of myself. I'm proud of everybody that was involved in it. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Reed, for coming on. We're going to take him out with Be Cool. Mm -hmm. And uh, I understand also that you're getting into, you know, you're, you're learning more and more about 
recording on your own. And uh, I wish you luck in that endeavor. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to get into. And you'll probably be recording and engineering all your own albums soon. <laughs> I still need help, man. <laughs> and, uh, you know, lo- uh, engineers in this city will be the worst for it because they won't be able to have you come in and record with them. But Thank you, man. You should keep it up. Uh, thanks again, man. Thanks, dude. Thanks for having me. Yeah, here's Be Cool from Reed Umstadt's Pockets of Clouds. The Dream Studios podcast is brought to you by PuppetTelegrams.com. Think of someone in your life. Would they love getting a personalized telegram from a puppet? Of course they would. You choose the puppet. That's the fun part. Will it be Wingo the Bat, lovable and dim-witted? Will it be Lionel the Lion, who is blustery and proud? 
Maybe you'll choose Layla the chicken, sarcastic and edgy, or Vitaly the monster, an excitable force of nature. After that, you provide some quick details about your recipient to help the puppet telegram be as personalized as possible. It's a quick and easy way to make someone laugh for quite literally any occasion. A birthday, anniversary, graduation, promotion, get well, congratulations, retirement, I miss you, and my favorite, just because. You don't have to be a kid to crack up at... You don't have to be a kid to crack up at one of these telegrams, and the messages can be anywhere from wholesome to edgy and everywhere in between. To get you started, the puppets are giving you a $10 coupon. Just use the code LAUGH, that's L-A-U-G-H, if you decide to order a puppet telegram from puppettelegrams.com.